back to another episode of the Free Thought Project podcast. I'm Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Free Thought Project Editor-in-Chief, Matt Agrist. We have a powerful show for you today, but first, if you could take a moment to please rate, review, and subscribe our podcast on your favorite podcast player of choice, that would help us out greatly. Our guest today is Commander Dale Brown from the Threat Management Center in Detroit which currently provides corporations, communities, educational institutions, and individuals with threat management education and facilitation. His approach to safety and security is drastically different from law enforcement by promoting nonviolent, positive outcomes rather than resorting to legally justified lethal or physical force. Since 1995, Dale Brown and his team have protected countless homes and businesses in Detroit and never once has had a court date, an employee killed, and most importantly, has never had an injured or killed client. Welcome to the show, Commander Brown. We met a few years ago when you came to the Bay Area for a conference, and we had a chance to talk shop a bit. Uh, Since then, we've stayed in communication, exchanged a few messages about the current state of police, and uh, how they can improve, what can be done to fix the institution as a whole. But before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about your background, the Threat Management Center, and how it came about? Yes, I started teaching a self-defense system in Detroit after a girl was chased off a bridge in front of a crowd of people. And I thought, if I could have taught people that were there on that bridge in Detroit then this little girl would not have watched her mother get chased off a bridge. And CNN would not have played in high rotation a story about an African-American woman being chased off a bridge by an African-American aggressor, assailant, in front of an entire crowd of African-Americans cheering as she was killed and uh, thrown off a bridge, or jumped off a bridge, rather. And... um, I, I thought the media was actually lying, that a crowd would actually be cheering. And I also thought that if I had a student on that, on that bridge, if I trained someone, then they could have stopped that from happening. And so I started teaching in the parks in Detroit. And then I uh, started teaching people in a, um, on the east side of Detroit, what was known as a very rough place. The east side of Detroit is notorious for being at risk. And so I'm originally from a college town called Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is where University of Michigan is located. So every night in the news, we're bombarded by stories of how horrific Detroit is. Even though our relatives are, you know, in Detroit, most African-Americans in the region have relatives in Detroit. Um, We're still terrified of anyone from Detroit because we're suburbanites and the people from Detroit are dangerous and scary. And they're in the news every day, killing people and dying. And it's just horrible because, you know, it's death and, and you're in the suburbs, you don't have that. So 
I grew up terrified of the city. And so when I went to Detroit, I was like, well, these people, uh, they need self-defense. And then they, they know how to, they didn't know how to learn to talk to the police officers. If police, if people know how to talk to police, then, you know, things would be better. They have to work with police. They have to talk to police. They have to be calm and respectful with police. They have to tell the whole story and then the police can help them. You know, that's where I'm from. I'm from Ann Arbor. It's a country. It's a college town. And I said, you know, when I came to Detroit, I was like, these people just need training. They need education. They need to learn how to talk and how to work with law enforcement to create the safety they need in their neighborhood. And I really believe that. I really believe that the problem was the people. Just like I watch the news. I watch movies and TV shows. And I know the problem. I saw, you know, all those movies. And it just showed the people in the cities are the problem. And the police are doing it, you know, the best they can to um, to mitigate and manage these horrible people in these horrible situations. And, you know, they're just terrible, basically terrible people living in terrible places, doing terrible things. And terrible things are happening to them. It's just terrible plus terrible. <laughs> and I thought, man, if I could just teach them self-defense. And then in the law, I was a private investigator when I got out of the military. I was an airborne paratrooper. And when I got out of the military, I thought, um, as a private investigator, I thought, man, there's all these things we don't know. And I've been a martial artist my whole life. And I remember thinking, like, this, you know, what we need in self-defense training is an understanding of law. Once I found out a lot about law and how it works in a courtroom by seeing it as a private investigator and seeing how things apply, understanding legally how to do things, I thought, man, every man, woman, and child needs to know the law. Why do we not know the law? Why are people governed by laws, but they don't know the laws that are governing them? Then a police officer is explaining to you the laws you've broken, and a lawyer is representing you when you didn't even know that was a law in the first place, nine times out of ten, or how that a law applies to your situation. And so I thought the first thing we need to do is educate people on what the law is. And um, so that's why I created my system. So on the east side of Detroit, bottom line is I... Um, I found out that uh, the problem was much greater than the fact that people didn't have uh, self-defense. They needed protection. And as I called the police repeatedly and coordinated with them as, as much as I could, I found out that they have two different initiatives. You know, where I'm from, police believe their job is to protect the college students at University of Michigan. Their job is to support everything that supports the region, and that creates peace. And from that the police where I'm from don't find ways to uh, prosecute the kids in the colleges and the, the support families around there. They find ways to, man to manage the issues. So I thought, thought it was the same way in the city. I thought basically the police are the same everywhere you go. And when I came to Detroit, I was talking to police officers and civilians that way. And I was talking to police officers and I was saying, you know, the people need help and they need this and protection. They were like, what are you talking about? And I was talking to the citizens, and I was like, hey, you know, you guys, um, you need to protect yourself. You got to protect the police. will help you. They were like, what are you talking about? The police will help you protect yourself. What does that mean? And I remember thinking, like, how could you be so confused, and why are the police acting confused? And essentially what I found out was that there's, there's a different thought process between the people and the police in urban communities. And the same kind of, of uh behavior exists in the, in the rural communities out in country towns, but from a different perspective. And essentially the uh, urban people and the rural people have a lot in common. <laughs> rural people don't have police response and police are usually far away from where they live and they're forced to manage their issues alone like Hatfields and McCoys 
and uh, they just handle their business uh, out in the country towns. That's the same thing that happens in urban communities, except there's news stations there. They call it black-on-black crime instead of justice or street justice or um, self-defense. You know, it's literally called, or heroics, where you go rescue someone you don't even know. They just call it a prosecutable situation, at which point the heroes in the urban communities are normally prosecuted. And I really did not know that. I really thought that basically, you know, if I saw you on the news and you were arrested, I thought you did something. For sure, you did something. And that's just not the case. And in many cases, you know, it's policy, you know, due to the situation, they had to be arrested. But the problem was you don't do a follow-up. There's no follow-up information. There's no investigation. No one's talking to inter- No one's interviewing witnesses. And uh, what's even worse is I-, I saw where they would ignore good witnesses. Like I, I was a witness in a situation where a woman, was sh- a woman and baby was shot from a third floor window. And when I went, to the news, the news people were there, and they said, "Well, is any, did anyone know anything? Did anyone see anything?" I said, "Oh, I, I did." And I'm dressed in civilian clothes, regular clothes, and I said, "Oh, I, I know what happened here." And they were like, "Okay, what happened?" So the news reporter is talking to me. I, I start talking. I'm like, "Yes, yeah, situation was this, blah blah blah." And uh, I guess she doesn't like Brian Gumble the way I talk, like Brian Gumble. So she decided to move away from me and find a guy with a plastic bag on his head. And start talking to him. And this guy was over in the side of the street. I, I, I saw everything. I thought everything. I, I seen him. I, they did, did. And they shot somebody. I was like, what is he talking about? He doesn't even know anything. Why, are they, why is the media even talking to that guy? And I remember thinking, like, this is not what I thought. I mean, watching TV from the suburbs, uh, I am totally confused right now. And what I found out uh, starting in 1995 was that essentially... Um, the police were tasked in urban communities with arresting people for crimes that have been committed um, or in general. Then the people um, who moved from the south, uh, from plantation areas and from the south moving for jobs to urban communities, were being targeted uh, by the civilians first and the police second. So what you're looking at is systemic institutionalized issues that are part of our society and police are often being blamed for problems that are actually part of our society. That's a bigger issue. And I found out that, uh, in, in remember the Detroit Police Department's majority African American. Uh, so there's no correlation between skin color and inappropriate behavior or treatment. There's uh, European American officers that are very professional and very protective and um, then there's African-American officers that grew up in the city that are horrific towards people they grew up with for various personal reasons uh, or apathy, social apathy reasons. Um, so I just learned a lot in uh, a very short period of time that I would not have known had I not been on the east side of Detroit helping families. And I put it that way because when I went to uh, start helping families, I found out that, that, that there are some good officers that will help. Like there's community policing officers, community officers that are oriented for, they actually join the police department to be those guys. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of them, and they're not they're not the most common officers, uh, although I did connect with them. And that's the officers that looked out for us as we looked out for the families. And so that's how we we're able to create safety was with these good police officers that were supporting um, a good quality of life. Let's be, let's be clear about what that means. That means they were supportive of good quality of life for the families. So instead of looking for 
prosecutorial interactions, these police officers that I'm talking about that supported us and our initiatives were about promoting anything that was positive for the community. And those good officers, um, you know, I, I believe they joined the police force for that reason and they carried it out. And, um, you know, that's unfortunate. We just don't have more of those kinds of officers that are totally focused on, you know, quality of life and, and creating a safe environment for the families more so than prosecuting. And uh, the upside of the story is this, that once I was able to get, um, you know, what I did was I went to the building owner who owned a very wealthy man who owned many skyscrapers and, and buildings in the area. And I lived in his buildings. And when I first started working, protecting the community, I was making $4.15 an hour and, min and minimum wage was five fifteen an hour. And I worked 80 hours a week and got paid for 40, no overtime. But what I was doing was protecting the families. I didn't care about the money. I cared about the fact that these people are being attacked every day. There was one murder in the one square block I lived in. There were daily home invasions, uh, people being beaten in the street. Um, it, it was horrible. I'm calling, I called the police so much. I called 911 so much, they knew my first name. The 911 operators would actually call my name out when I talked to them. They're like, Dale, is that you again? Yes, operator 14. They were like, okay, yes, we already have officers on the way. And um, it was just common for me to have constant conversations with 911 operators because we always call the police first. And I started that in 1995. And um, when the police get there, you know, we help them if we can. And they help us if they can nine times out of ten uh, with quality of life issues related to violence and mistreatment of people. And um, that's our focus. Our focus is not on who's drinking or smoking or, or selling something. What we're interested in is one thing, making sure people stay alive and safe. And I started that in 1995. And it turns out that when you do that in a what they call at-risk community of people, you make it safe for them. And when families are safe, they prosper. And you know who else prospers? Whoever owns the buildings they live in. Now your occupancy goes up from, say, 30%. From 1960 to 1995 uh, to what is now 90% occupancy because no one's being home invaded, no one's being murdered uh, in their homes, so you're, no one moves out. So we created safety for the families, and as a result, a direct result of creating safety for families and protecting them from violence, not prosecuting those who, who actually perpetrated it, but just not allowing um, perpetrators to attack the families. As a result, the families prospered and the building owners prospered. The business owners went from, uh, you know, <laughs> one-tenth of the population to a massive number of people buying products in their stores. So now the business community is thriving. And as long as you're not creating violence, that's going to be a constant growth uh, scenario. And that's what I found out is that we, if we focus on how not to use violence to create behavioral change, and create a good quality of life and focus on quality of life issues, we can create a community in a safe uh, area where businesses and the people both prosper. And as a result, the police department got the credit for having a huge drop in crime in what they call the crack alley. So they went from 300 calls, I was told this by the by the administrator in the, in the police department at the time, that their calls went from 300 calls a month and a lot of crime issues to 30 calls a month, and those were me. <laughs> so, wow. Yes, and that's because we always called the police first before taking any action. 
20 situations were situations where we had to take exigent action because the circumstances called for it, not because we're acting in a vigilante situation. We called 911, told them the situation. The police got there in time, then they did. If they didn't, we still helped the families and made sure that no one got stabbed, shot, killed, abducted. And uh, it turns out that when you do that, everyone prospers. The city prospers. The building owners prosper. Most importantly, the families, the working class families and poor families survive as a result of not being home invaded and murdered. And, of course, the rich people that I worked for, meaning that owned the buildings, that didn't like me, <laughs> they loved my results and kept, you know, kept the financial conditions going. And so that's how, uh, that's how everything I started. started in 1995. I just made it so that regular people had a good quality of life right here in the United States of America. They didn't have to lay in, um, you know, hope they didn't get killed in their homes. They felt safe, and as a result, they paid their bills. They went to work. They knew their stuff was going to be at their home when they got home. And, um, you know, the police got a lot less stress from a lot less calls, a lot less problems. So everyone was a winner. So speaking of which, in the past 25 years, like roughly how many homes and businesses does your organization help protect now? Uh, so we evolved. So back then it was um, mostly apartment buildings on the east side, so lower income to middle income. And now we protect the most affluent uh, neighborhoods in Detroit, um, which according to television sounds like an oxymoron, but um, Detroit is an extremely wealthy place and uh, has the, t the two extremes. Um, and then, of course, factory workers, there's you know middle class here. Solid middle class has always been here. And, um, but you never see the wealthy on the news or the media, but they have, you know, uh, houses that are, you know, 7,000 to 20,000 square feet in, in, in Detroit. So not like outside Detroit. So it's, wow. it, these are traditional communities where the executives, including executives that work for places like GM, Ford, and Chrysler, this is where they lived in the Motor City. They lived in gigantic homes, very gordy has, has uh, his home is in Detroit on uh, a street called Boston. And his, his home is about, looks like 30,000 square feet. That's not one of our protected communities, but we do have houses in that community we protect. So we protect individual homes throughout Detroit and businesses, and we protect communities through homeowner associations that hire um, our security partner uh, for services. So Threat Management Center is essentially the training entity and community service organization. And when we do actual security guard work, that's through a licensed guard company. So you get threat managers trained to uh, provide security services through security guard companies. And that's what, um, that's how we're able to take our education and use it to create uh, the positives within a working environment. So the key is education though. It's not, it's not um, uh, college education, it's actual uh, threat management education, which is the system I created, teaches you how to use psychology, law, and skill in that order to create a non-adversarial interaction for a non-violent outcome. And so it's literally the science of survival, but it emphasizes how not to use violence for that survival. So how to read body language, how to project body language, how to de-escalate using your body language how to understand body language that is de-escalating versus escalating body language, and then how to be in a biomechanical advantage situation so you could dominate that threat without injuring and killing the other person, even if they had intent to kill you.
So we don't believe in righteous violence. So I, uh, I evolved when I started in the 90s. I believed in righteous violence. I believe that if you try to kill me, I try to kill you back. And um, if you, you know, attack me, I attack you back. And so once I learned more about humans and psychology and the reality of the human psychological condition, I was able to create a different system, a completely different way of thinking. So I'm a completely different, I have a completely different methodology of thought process between when I started in the 90s and now. So in the 90s, I thought, legally, I can use force under these conditions, so I should. Now, it doesn't matter when we can use force, we don't. We find a way to create a non-adversarial, non-violent uh, outcome, and even if we had to physically touch someone, uh, we do it in such a way that they're not injured. So can, there is a method, there is a science to how you can do it, and we're living it right here in Detroit. Man, that sounds amazing. Can you give us an example of how that would uh, play out? Like, just in, like, a, there's a violent confrontation happening. How would you, you and your organization move to, to quash that violence without using uh, violence? Oh, many ways. Uh, all the time. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty consistent. Um, you know, everything from, I actually have one on our Facebook, Vipers Threat Management, where I, it's me responding to a woman being abducted. It's um, her ex-boyfriend. She fought her way out of a car, and, uh, and she's being pulled back in the car. She's screaming according to the, to the witnesses who are calling. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we advise them they have to call 911, which they do. And they call me, and they, well, they call our, our, our uh, security number. Uh, and then um, I respond and my response time was approximately three minutes. And uh, when I got there, I didn't see anything. All I saw was a car, and uh, there was other cars there, so I didn't even recognize it was any kind of situation. I turned around, and I see a man pop out of the backseat of a car. So as I pull up, I see a woman on the floorboard in the backseat of a car. He was on top of her, choking her. You see the video that I uploaded to Facebook, uh, I tell him to, you know, back away from her, and I talk to her, and I say, do you want to go? And she, you know, indicates she wants to stay here, meaning here as in not go with him. And then um, then I, I told him to uh, back away from her. He's trying to use his psychology to manipulate the situation. And uh, then I sent him on his way. And I got the woman into my vehicle. Police showed up and took her to the hospital. And uh, she gave him her ex-boyfriend's name. And license plate is on my camera system. So police got all the information to do their investigation and go arrest him later. And so some people would say, well, why didn't you take him into custody? Because uh, that's not my goal. My goal is to make sure that someone's sister, mother, daughter is not abducted. My goal is to get her to safety. The police are law enforcement. They're, they have a different objective. Their objective can be this, but their primary objective is law enforcing. So that's where there's a separation. And that's where a lot of people are, are confused that those two things are not necessarily related and often are not in general. So the enforcement of law and protection are two separate things. Example, Secret Service protects and you don't hear about them doing things that police officers are doing. In fact, when President Reagan got shot, even though the Secret Service has the best guns in the world, they didn't fire a single bullet. And that's because their field of fire was not clear. They'd rather die than shoot another officer, another Secret Service member, another police officer, or shoot people in the crowd. They would rather die. So officers, so Secret Service agents literally jumped in front of the bullet to protect Reagan. And it worked. Reagan's alive, and unfortunately, Reagan's killer 
is out now, which is attempted killer, attempted assassin. He's actually out, which is really strange. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he's he's doing artwork on the East Coast somewhere under a different name, but he's free. Um, but this guy, um, you know, they they stopped him by tackling him and taking the gun from him, and um, you know, rescuing President Reagan. So uh, the idea that bullets flying through the air are a positive is it just doesn't hold true for secret service and it doesn't hold true for anyone the reality is you know uh, is there a time for shooting sure is it rare is it, it's as rare as a lightning strike but you can make it less rare by simply believing in righteous violence you can literally believe that force and violence is the way to create behavioral change and you can actually produce a legally articulatable reason to shoot people it's it's easily done if that's your thought process, you can also defeat it, which is why most police officers never, ever shoot anyone their whole career. And that's because they didn't want to. It's not because they couldn't. Well, let's be clear. Most police officers, nine out of ten police officers will never shoot a person during their whole career simply because they decided not to. Although they could have been in a situation where they could have shot someone, they just didn't do it. And that's where you're seeing CNN not be honest. They're not, you know, they're, they're creating not by purpose. I think it's actually a subconscious result of I want to report things and I'm in a big city and um, this is big city stuff. I don't want to go to Oshkosh, Bagosh, you know, town of whatever state and report that whatever's happening out there. I want to report, you know, what's in the city. That's interesting. People will care about a city. They won't care about Oshkosh, Bagosh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Wyoming, Idaho. They just don't care. So what you see are these stories, these narratives uh, especially the latest narrative is white cop does something to black person or white person calls the police on black person. Um, these are false narratives and um, stereotypes that are playing into a thought process, which, you know, at um, face value would seem, you know, it's okay to say those things because, you know, they're half true, right? Um, are there, you know, prejudiced people, bigoted people? Absolutely. And are they motivated that way? Absolutely. But is that the uh, core issue? Absolutely not. That is not the core issue. That's like rape being associated with pretty girls wearing short skirts. Do pretty girls get raped with short skirts? I'm sure they do. But that's not the majority of them. And that's not even the reason why women are being raped. They're being raped because there's bad men out there that are rapists and women that are rapists. I didn't know that. But there are women that are rapists. And then uh, there's men raping men. And so we don't talk about those things because they don't fit the narrative. So we always, we you know, we want to focus on what we think is interesting as an editor or producer of news programming. Sure. The problem with that is it, it, it creates recency bias that's false. And we, as the population of people, the masses, develop belief systems that are false from those narratives, which are being played out in the media. And I, I really believe that stuff. You know, you keep watching it. You're like, wow, look at this pervasive problem. Um, sure. It's so pervasive. That's why it's on the news. And so the news is telling us severity and significance, right? No, it's not. The news never reports severity, significance, or frequency of anything. They're right. reporting stories. That's all. And so you're not supposed to think that that you know there's not a problem with ugly people being raped or um, that that animals aren't being raped somewhere. They are. It's just we don't care, so we're not talking about that. You're not supposed to believe that the uh, the KKK doesn't have meetings anymore because no one's showing it. Yes, they were always having meetings. They never stopped. Um, you're never supposed to think the cake, the uh, the Hell's Angels and the Pagans and all these thousands of other motorcycle gangs are literally just doing nothing all day. 
You're supposed to know that they are raping, robbing, and killing people. That's what they do, one percenters. They do that. And just because you don't see it on the news doesn't mean they're not doing it. It means the news doesn't think it, biker stories are interesting. I think they're interesting. I think it would be interesting, in my personal opinion. But I don't make the news. So when you look at these stories, it's imperative for people to realize, and this is where you and I, I've talked to you about that, Jason, is that these false narratives um, create axioms, right? So now it's just a fact. White people call the police on black people, and black people just sit around not doing that. They just, like, they're right now, there's all these black people just sitting around in the city, and they're like, call the police. No, I don't call the police. I just sit here. That is not true. African Americans call the police all day, every day. There's never a day where a 911 system in the city is not overrun with cities, with, with calls from African Americans calling about random things and actual things and false things. And a lot of them are false calls, too. I saw a black person doing something. Um, but aren't you black? And then on CNN, it says black people don't do that. I watch CNN, and it's never black people calling on black people. That's not true. They do. And you think European Americans sit around going, I was going to call police, but since your skin is the same color as mine, we're good. It doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I think that, that that distraction in the mainstream media that focuses solely on race, it tends to lend itself to never providing a solution for any of the problems that they say that they you know that we have. And you don't yes. hear any of the you don't hear any of the the mainstream media narrative talking about ending the drug war or or uh, or anything like that, or actually removing qualified immunity and and to to remove that incentive for violence that you'd say you know that that is the problem behind all that. It's a uh, it's just this this constant talking point of everybody's a victim and we tell who well we tell which people who are the who the victims are and who the aggressors are and oh, that yeah. way we make sure never to ever find a solution to any of these problems that you know that are that are happening all over the place. Well let's be clear that's because we think that race exists. So as long as you think race exists you're racist and racism is a problem. Racism is not it, it, it's based on the idea that race exists. How are you going to have a race based on a skin tone? It doesn't even make sense. Even if you're going to have race, if you, let's say you wanted to believe that race existed, you wouldn't use a skin color. 80% of the world's albinos are born in Africa, and their parents are very dark brown. 80% of the world's albinos. You never see them running around asking for white power, having big white power meetings, wanting to overthrow the government. And uh, you never see albinos trying to join the KKK. And guess what? The KKK won't let those African albino people join the KKK just because their skin is more pale than any European or European American. So there is no white people. There is no black people. There are people from Europe. They might be German. They might be Jewish. They might be Jewish German. They might be Catholic. They might be. And guess what? Each one of them has a story, a story of mistreatment at some point, especially here in the Americas by the nativists, the first people that were the descendants of the colonists. So if you don't discover uh, true American history, if you don't ever learn about real oppression and how it affected many different groups, then you don't even understand that African Americans are part of a large group of abuse victims, just like every other group of um, people at some point in the Americas, uh, barring the you know, uh, European American Protestants. So Catholics were abused here. Jews were abused um, and that's, you know, like different enclaves were created. But the, the reality is, <laughs> until you let race go, you're not going to be able to stop the falsehoods associated with racism. Right. So there is no race. And, and think about this. How, 
how did you come up with a race with African-Americans, millions of African-Americans born on a plantation using a European last name, using a European first name, using a European religion, using European words, at what point would they become African? And if you're, if you're saying it's skin color, what happens to the majority of us, which are mixed? The vast majority of all African-American descendants of African enslaved people are mixed with many different things, but especially European, which is where we got our names from. So the idea that you're going to call someone that's got two parents, one from Europe and one from Africa, a black, is a racist ideology. You're not, that doesn't even make any logical sense unless you're thinking from a racist perspective. That a person with one drop of brown African blood or albino blood, which doesn't make sense again. So one drop of African blood makes you a black, even if your skin is more pale than any Europeans that you know. That doesn't make. So the concept is uh, that we're going to have a conversation that's meaningful about people and groups and collectives and then use race ruins the entire ability for us to have a logical conversation. How about this? Where did you first actually create race documentation in the United States? Isn't that interesting? Like African-Americans couldn't write or read. We were legally not allowed to. You would be killed for reading. So now you're emancipated. How did you fill out the paperwork to say you were black? I mean, who did that for you? Millions of us were octroons and quatroons, which means we're it's so pale that you couldn't tell we're African-American at all anyway. My point is this. How, how, how did that become a thing? Like, your tanness is an ethnic group. That doesn't make sense. And then who determined that? That would be someone who's going to come to your door and, and, and say, I call you black. I call Guess what? They used to call Indians black in the first census uh, in the United States, the first few sentences, censuses that were taken. They called Indians. They called Asians. Anybody that wasn't European-American Protestant was called black for a while. And they're like, well, let's not do that. Let's call them something else. So... The idea that, that we now understand the society we live in doesn't even make sense when you go back in history. And the point is, you can't understand that the current conditions of anything, a car, a person, a house, right, unless you understand the history of it. If you don't understand the history of a thing, a people, or a place, then there's no way you can understand the current conditions that exist now. How can we manage the safety and the protection of a community, a corporation, or a country if we don't understand how it was not safe in the first place. What made it unsafe? So um, threat management is about understanding all those aspects of human behavior and learning from them. So we had to learn that we, we did, for example, protecting special events. Uh, what does it mean when one Mexican group has uh, short hair, one Mexican group has long hair? What about one Mexican group has big buck, belt buckles and one doesn't? What if the belt was down on one side and not on the other? What if uh, European-Americans... Uh, are from the south, one group of European Americans from the, is from the north. What about European Americans that are Baltic and some are Serbian and some are Croatian and some are Bosnian? Well, they're not going to get along. And so uh, in many cases, that, especially events, if you don't know that, you can't go, oh, look at those white people fighting each other. It's white on white violence. It makes no sense. And so if we don't understand that, um, that these these axioms, right, black-on-black -black crime is a problem in an urban environment. Really? Uh, how come black-on-black self-defense isn't a crime, uh, isn't a problem? How come black-on-black -black heroics rescuing uh, other uh, black people, if you're going to call people blacks, why is that not a thing, right? And that's because it's senseless in the eyes of some people for African-Americans even to defend themselves. And I saw that firsthand as I'm standing there with victims and I'm standing there with perpetrators um, and 
And it's very difficult to get people put into a cage uh, that <laughs> need to be put into a cage. And it was very difficult to get people not put in a cage that were the heroes. It was really weird. And it's been weird for the entire time of learning. I'm still learning because people are evolving. Things are better now than ever before. The police are much more professional now than they were 20, 30 years ago. And they're getting more professional every day, regardless of what CNN is showing people that don't study. Uh, and so I can tell you right now um, that uh, this has been my subject since the 90s. Is I started teaching police officers and civilians in the 90s. And um, what I can tell you is that education for everyone is vital. People need to learn about law. Police need to learn about law application. Qualified immunity is a concept that we use for police, but qualified immunity is why there's not one person in prison for being a KKK member that lynched African-Americans by the thousands. And it wasn't just African-Americans that got lynched. There were European-Americans that were friends with the African-Americans. There were European-Americans that got lynched that supported African-Americans or Asians or Latinos. So the idea that uh, the, the KKK only killed, only lynched uh, certain people is just not true. But here's what you know for sure. There's uh, a lack of prosecution. And that is because that prosecution would come from their community and people in there that are peers are not going to prosecute them. That's qualified for immunity by genetics. And that's a much bigger problem than qualified immunity in, in policing. We just don't realize it because George Zimmerman is still free and we think that makes sense. You're not supposed to chase people's children or follow them with a gun. And if that, even if you, you went with George Zimmerman's story about he was following some high school kid with his gun and the kid turned around and attacked him. Well, in the state of Florida, if you follow someone with or without a gun, they're allowed to protect themselves. And he was clearly following him as he was on the phone with 911 and George Zimmerman is following someone's kid. I don't care if George Zimmerman was African-American and he was following a European-American kid or following a Latino kid. You're not supposed to be following people's kids uh, or adults. And you're definitely not supposed to be doing it while you're armed, following through neighborhoods. Uh, and if you do that, especially in a place like Florida or Texas, you should expect to be attacked for following people and um, <laughs> making them feel unsafe. Okay, you're not allowed point, to man. <laughs> Okay, and my point is this. Until we can see that Trayvon Martin... Until we as a society can see that Trayvon Martin is just somebody's kid and that this other guy is somebody's adult kid and that adult with a gun shot an unarmed kid and see that as wrong, we cannot understand that that is the big problem and that police are just people just like George Zimmerman. They're just people. So how could the police be different than the people? They really aren't. But I will tell you this, and that's because police and people are both people. I don't know why people are trying to distinct, make a distinction, but... The police are actually uh, going to be more structured than uh, regular people. You just you, mentally, what's happening is people are saying, "Oh, look, the police are, you know, different than the people." Well, they are. They're actually more peaceful. You just don't you just don't look at them as humans. You look at them as uh, someone doing a duty or work, and that's true. And 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 yes, that should change. And that's what I work towards is showing police officers uh, options on nonviolence, right? And empowering them with the ability to uh, take people into custody without injuring people. Um, that actually and, brings up mm -hmm. a, a point that I was going to ask you about. Because uh, yeah. a few years back, um, the Cop Block co-founder, Pete Ayer, came to your facility and interviewed you. And when he asked you what threat management was about, your answer was how to properly manage human threats to create the most nonviolent outcome possible. 
Um, That mission statement alone is a far cry from and departure from uh, current law enforcement state objective, which, you know, police are supposed to protect and serve the public, uh, as many departments' mottos claim. But uh, how did they stray so far from your organization's goal of creating the most nonviolent outcome possible? Okay, that's a great question. Um, Perception. Like I said, the reality is (laughs) that police are... um, uh, actually stopping crime, stopping violence, stopping issues. Uh, and it's very boring uh, for CNN, so they're not showing you, okay? So if you actually saw what mostly is happening, um, then you would have a different feeling. And that's the, that's the issue. So right now, uh, African-Americans, and I have a hell of a time explaining to them that um, European-American people are being shot by police. They don't believe me. They're like, that's not true. Only blacks are being shot. That's that's none of that's that's not true. Right. And they cannot accept that um, that there are European Americans that are against abuse of African Americans either. They really I mean they went to college. They just I saw white people on TV, they're proud boys, um, they're vile, they're violent towards blacks, and that's all there is. All white people are this way. And I saw it on CNN. I mean that the, these these narratives are very narrow and don't even match reality in any way, right? If you think it out, right? So for example, I just told you nine out of 10 police officers never ever shoot anyone except on CNN. Nine out of 10 police officers always shoot someone. 99% of all the stories of police on CNN or any other news agency is where the police officer does shoot someone. Okay. But that's not accurate in terms of what's actually happening today. And I have 99% of all police departments. So what we need to do first is actually defer to reality. And so here's an example. People will call and say, hey, police officer, there's uh, this person. I don't like them. They look funny. The officer gets there, and nine times ten, the officer says, and you don't matter. Leave them alone. That's what actually happens, okay? So uh, the police actually say they're not doing anything illegal. Stop harassing them, citizen. Or they ignore them altogether. No, I'm not going over there. I'm not going to deal with that. And I know that from firsthand experience. So what I'm telling you is when you watch TV, though, what are they showing you? They're showing you. The other ones, they're not showing you the fact that the, that the majority of Europe, the majority of African American and European American police and Latino police and Asian police, the majority of what they do is not have problems all day. Sure, they're not shooting anyone. There's none of that. That's nine out of ten every day. So imagine if you think it's the other way, the other way though. You think you know today officers went in and they just they were fighting today and shooting people today. That is not accurate. That's very inaccurate. And uh, that's very dangerous, too, because if we start believing that that's what's happening, right, you can actually perpetuate that. You know, if we keep watching TV and officers are people, they watch TV and the next thing you know, they're perpetuating it. So so we have to be- we have to create the belief system in the piece we want. And uh, if you go to my website, you see police officers talking about how they use the training uh, to not injure people, to take them into custody, to avoid shooting people. You know, in some cases also used my training to actually shoot criminals that were bad, that were shooting at them and win the firefight. So it's not that, you know, there's never a time in which you can um, use fatal force or lethal force. It's just that there's, it's so rare. It's such a rare condition that with proper training, you can literally save officers lives uh, and save a lot of people's lives from many things. Uh, And the first thing we're going to save people from is false narratives that are brought about from recency bias 
because we are all experiencing it by watching um, news media stories that don't give us um, a complete picture. Well, it gives us the snapshot. Yeah, and I think what you're trying to say, and we've talked about this a bunch on this podcast before, is that there is incentive by news outlets, including ourselves, to try to cover stories and, and market content that know is going to resonate with their yes. audience, that people are going to have yes. a bias with. And they yes. specifically cherry pick that information. And what that Correct. tends to do is create a selective outrage about a certain topic and yes. certain buzzwords like black on black crime and certain police violence and whatnot. But it doesn't happen as frequently as you would see it on a CNN story, for instance, but they still do happen. But and remember this, it's, the also, case, it's also demented. The way it's being reported is demented, too. Sure. Please well, it, it doesn't mean that it's not necessarily happening. It just means that what you're seeing is accumulation of, of these. And the majority of officers, I mean, how many officers are there in the United States? 700,000. 700,000. So, I mean, the majority of those people aren't having negative interactions. And the ones right. that we do hear about on the news tend to be some of the worst ones. But Absolutely. Do, you, do you, let me ask you a question. I realize this is a blanket statement, but do you believe that there is a general complacency and apathy among law enforcement that leads to them not particularly caring about an individual's experience and creates a breeding ground for abuse of authority and police violence? Um, I believe that the abuse is in the human. So uh, this is why if you are from a different college, uh, you may get beat up at a college party. I believe that if you're at a high school, especially down south, those big high school fights on the football field every Friday night, um, it's not because you're pale or dark-skinned or, or Latino. It's because you're a different football team. And they're violent. They beat people up. People get killed at sporting events. Kids, kids sporting events, people get killed at those. Um, it doesn't make them evil. It just means humans are violent. Uh, road rage is something that happens. It's real. People are being killed every day in road rage. Um, doesn't mean we should outlaw cars or uh, outlaw guns or outlaw people, right? So we just have to have a, 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 um, a realistic overall snapshot so we can make a better set of decisions and also so we can formulate better plans. But we can't do that with false narratives. And, uh, yes, there, there are some serious problems. But those problems are in the people. The people on uh, the police are just people. So if you take police and you make them – uh, you make people into police officers, right? And those people already have problems that p- people already have. You, you just exacerbated the problem uh, in conditions where, um, in the current conditions, we just don't have a lot of uh, safeguards and oversight that, that does need to improve. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of, uh, uh, as you can see from, from what's been happening, there is a lot more, Uh, oversight taking place, the cameras, and I said this many years ago, I think I said this to you, Jason, remember we were talking when I first met you back in in, in California, I said these cameras are a terrible idea if you're not going to train the police officers, yet you have to train the officers, and completely differently if you're going to use these cameras. Uh, The cameras are a great idea, but you you have to train the officers uh, completely different, a totally different thought process, and um, in my opinion, you know, the, uh, what I do is I really focus on getting police officers to become law enforcement oriented. So they're more into the enforcement of laws than um, feelings about uh, people. Sure. And um, then also from their protection. So once you're 
um, law enforcement oriented. So in other words, if, you know, if you're a police officer and your friend's a police officer and your friend does something wrong, he knows you're going to take him to jail regardless. He's just not, he knows. So what he didn't, what he does know, because you are a law enforcement officer first and foremost, is he can't do anything inappropriate to anyone or around you because he knows you're going to take him to jail anyway, even though you're friends, even though you're brothers, even though you're, you know, I, I saw a story where a, a police officer took his father to jail because he knew his father had robbed a bank. Um, actually, his father robbed several banks, I think. And he figured out it was his dad, so he took his dad to prison. And his dad went to prison for 15 years. Uh, and so that is a real law enforcement officer right there. Okay. Uh, a lot of people wouldn't do that. But he respected um, the laws more than he respected his, um, his own family's ability to stay free and continue to rob banks. His father had a serious mental issue and drug, or excuse me, I think it was a gambling habit or something. So, uh, but that just shows integrity on the part of that law enforcement officer to put law first. And then to take it a step further, uh, one of the things I really emphasize for both civilians and police is, to, is heroics, is to really believe in protecting people. And protection is about prevention. It's not about violence. It's about creating conditions where violence does not occur. So that means using your intellect, ingenuity, and initiative to create peace. And the way to do that, first and foremost, is to look at people as family. You have to care about people in order to protect people. You have to love people in general, and you have to love humanity in general if you want to see humanity do well. And that's for everyone. I don't care if they look like you or they don't look like you. You have to look at everyone as a valid human who deserves to live. And that's going to always be a, a situation uh, for people that don't have that natural ability to do that. So you have to teach humanity to people who lack it. And that's, that, that's a challenge. Uh, and that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're in a religious group or if you're in a, uh, an educational organization or if you're in an agency of some type, private sector or, or uh, government sector. You have to look at humans as people and you have to love people in order to protect them and to want to see them prosper and to see them succeed. Critically important. I think that was that mentality, that statement was one of the light bulbs that went off in my head when I watched your interview with Pete Ayer, the co-founder of Coplock a few years ago, because it, it seems like such a departure from what we know and expect from police in this day and age. Uh, we often hear from them that the most important thing to them is to get home to their families at night where you're right. saying the key was to put the protection of the families before your own and to think about yes. only one thing, which was a good quality of life for the people there. And guess what? Police officers that do that, they're called heroes. And my point is this, promote those officers, protect those officers, give those officers the, the ability to affect the others and watch, watch the whole thing change. So really it's about perspective of purpose. And so that's what I find from training both police officers uh, and citizens um, is that once we change our perspective of purpose, we can change our, our interpretation, uh, our interactions, and our outcomes for the better. You can actually, when you look at people as people and you look at them as family members, um, somebody's family, right? Everyone's someone's family. Then what happens is your life, uh, your quality of life improves as you make other people's quality of life improves naturally. You just look at them as people. And it's really hard if you're trained not to do that. So I was an airborne paratrooper. I was trained to bring death from above. I, was, I love songs about killing because that's what we did in the Airborne is uh, great songs about killing people. Um, and at 20 years old, it was exciting. But as you mature and your brain matures, you're like, wait, it's not good to go 
killing or singing about killing people and bringing death from above and be a spearhead uh, trooper. And um, and I, I did love jumping out of aircraft. But when you think about, like, my purpose is to go kill people, that's a, that's a terrible thing. And so what if, you, what if you don't learn that? What if you don't evolve? Well, that's going to be a problem mentally that, you know, you have to develop a, a higher level of love of humanity in order to want to interact with humanity in a positive way. Most important is not how well you fight. Uh, what, what really matters is how well you're able to communicate and care about people if you want to protect them. Do, do you feel like police culture facilitates and nurtures that? I think it does if the, if the chief does, if the chief of those police officers, if, the, if their command structure supports it, yes, absolutely. If it doesn't, then no, it can't. And so it really comes down to the culture. Um, and that's why you hear certain places like where I'm at, the police, I'm, I'm in a place in Michigan, police are very positive here. I mean, I, I haven't heard any complaints about police here. And I've, I have had, um, one time a lot, my alarm went off, police came to my house <laughs> and I interacted with them. It was very positive. Turned out that uh, that particular officer was airborne. And so we, uh, talked for a few minutes and then that was it. There's no violence, no, you know, none of that. And, uh. Uh, and so what happens is a lot of it has to do with your position. So I live in a, a very upscale community in Michigan, and they, uh, the police believe their job is to make sure we're safe. And so you actually feel that when they're interacting with you, that that's their perspective of purpose. And imagine if you take that same perspective of purpose and you took it everywhere. And then what would happen is police would be not just respected, but when you see them, you'd be like, oh, this, I'm really safe. Everything's really safe right now. And that's the way my, my opinion should be. And it's not about the clothing. You know, people are saying, well, the paramilitary policing or militarization of police, that has nothing to do with behavior. Nothing. Not, not at all. Uh, clothing is optional. You can, you can be undercover and have horrific outcomes. Um, the militarization, in fact, slows people down, really. It, it makes it more obvious and slows people down. But what really needs to happen is um, we need to rehumanize uh, everyone, um, citizen and police, so that people can look at, at people from the human perspective. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Um, people say to me, well, the police didn't go back there. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. Okay. And I tell them, I go, what's the incentive? They're like, what do you mean? You want the police officer to go in the backyard, right? Yes. Okay. Well, so because you dated someone, because you broke up with someone before, you, because you fired an employee, because you had a problem with someone, now they're supposed to go back in the dark, in the backyard to die for your situation right? And you didn't even want to give them a bulletproof helmet. You don't want to give them a bulletproof vest that stops rifles or shotguns. You, don't want to, you didn't want to give them a bulletproof car. Think about that. There's bullets flying. We, we expect officers to go to a place where there's bullets flying. That doesn't even make sense. There's bullets flying, and I want you to drive over there in your family car and, uh, and, and, and die for the cause. How is that fair for anyone? How is that even a fair job? You know what I mean? Think about it from that perspective. So the first thing we'd have to do is remove the fear. Uh, and the way we do that first is by giving officers the protection they need, then have an expectation for them uh, to use their safeness, their safety, their inherent safety that comes from the proper PPE to use that feeling of safety to become calmer and feel safer and treat people in that way. But in our current condition, this is, this is a travesty for everyone. So you got uh, police that are unsafe, and then obviously if the police are unsafe, the people are going to be unsafe. Uh, that's that's going to be a general thing, right? So we have to add safety for both, uh, and then from there, 
um, promote what we want. So uh, we want to show officers, uh, we want officers to do positive things. Where's the reward for that? Where's the metrics for the positives? How many rescues did officers have? And if they did these rescues, they should be given credit for it. If they protected people, if they prevented crime, that should be the metrics, not how many arrests they have, not a negative metrics. So imagine, and I tell this because I, I had a lady say this to me one day when I was driving through a neighborhood. She said, y'all don't do nothing. <laughs> I said, what do you mean, ma'am? She goes, y'all just drive around. I said, ma'am, and this is about four years ago in her community in the inner city of Detroit. I said, ma'am, since we've been here for six years, have you heard of anyone in your community of your 450 homes in this one particular community? Have you heard of anyone being shot, robbed, raped, or killed ever since the day we started? And she thought about it. She's like, wow. I said, six years, six years, not one home invasion, not one robbery, not nothing. She goes, oh, wow, I didn't think of it that way. I said, exactly. I said, you remember the other day on the street across from her? I said, remember all those police officers? She goes, yes. I said, that's because two blocks from you, not in a community we, we don't work in this community, this other community, uh, a man was shot 15 times on his front porch. And the police responded quickly and, he, and, and secured the area and started the investigation. And they may have gotten the guy, too. They did the crime. I'm not sure. But uh, that doesn't happen in our community because we prevent it, because our objective is preventing it. We're not, we don't want to uh, capture those that have committed crimes in our community. We want to not let that happen, specifically. And then the property value goes up, perception of value goes up, quality of life improves, and uh, everyone wins by having an uh, environment where uh, you created conditions for violence not to occur. So when we came to situations which were violent, uh, like a husband and wife, um, uh, both are armed legally. They're both African-American. They both have their guns out. And the wife has her children. And they're screaming. And the mother-in-law. So there's some kind of serious domestic situation with upper middle class, African-American family, armed, legally armed people. These are professionals. And they're just obviously not acting professional this time. So my Marine, who's a European-American, just got back from Afghanistan, who's been retrained by me, um, and is carrying weapons. He is carrying. He, he uh, is an armed guard. And uh, he comes to the situation, and instead of using his training as a Marine to shoot the parents, uh, or pick which parents he's going to shoot first, he does what I train him to do, which is de-escalate them using psychology. And uh, to create the um, non-adversarial interaction and using de-escalatory body language and verbal persuasion, got them to uh, calm down, separate, and then go their separate ways. And he took the husband in the house, talked to him, talked him down, and the family got back together again later, and they're all fine. But imagine if uh, my team member, who was trained as a Marine, thought the best thing to do was to use his gun to solve a gun issue. Well, there's no way, there's no good part to that story with the parents and the kids and the guns. Um, and uh, another situation, another one of my team members who's European-American, Italian, and that guy I was telling you about grew up in the country. He grew up in like a, he's a Marine from Michigan who grew up in like a double-wide mobile home out in the country, real, real country guy, real nice guy, uh, real family guy. And here he is in an urban community um, protecting lives like family. And um, then I had another situation where an Italian rich kid who was all, I don't know why we have all those Marines, but he was a Marine as well. And um, big steroid guy. And um, I retrained him to think differently. 
And uh, when he got to a situation where there was a gigantic African-American that looked like uh, a guy from the movies, like a, a giant uh, predator, he had giant uh, dread sticking out of his head um, and very violent. Um, he was at a drugstore and he was having a mental issue. He was extremely out of control and he's threatening everyone. He's saying that he's about 6'8", about 350, 380. And he's jumping around with his hair. He looks like he's about seven feet tall, at least. And um, just scaring everyone, all the families. And most of the families that he's scaring are also African-American. And um, so as my guy pulls up in a uh, black Crown Victoria, tells you what year that was, um, he says, he says, I'm not going to tell you, don't get out of your car. He tells that to my, to my team member. He says, don't get out of the car. And uh, we already called police. Police are on the way. Uh, but he won't let anybody inside the store, and he won't let anybody outside the store. So he's staying right at the front door of a major pharmacy. And we work for the landowner. And the landowner is getting a complaint from the drugstore that they're going to pull. If they don't get that guy, so they don't help and solve this issue, they're going to pull their pharmacy from this strip mall. So that's why we got sent there by the owner of the strip mall land uh, who wants just some kind of help. <laughs> and we work for the same person in some other city. So um, to make a long story short, we get to the situation. My uh, Italian guy says to this uh, giant African-American, and the Italian kid is like 20, maybe 25. The African-American is about 35, 40 years old. And um, uh he says, don't get out of the car to my team member. My team member says, um, sir, can I just talk to you? He goes, I'm telling you, don't get out of the car. If you get out of the car, uh, you know, I'm going to do you, is what he was saying. And so my guy was like, okay, sir, I'm not going to get out of the car. He goes, I'm not leaving here because the satellites can read my brain waves right now. So I'm not leaving from underneath this awning in front of this drugstore. And so my team member looks around and he goes, okay, can I say one thing? He goes, what? He goes, if, sir, if you just go across the street to this abandoned building, it's got a steel awning and it's solid and it can, it can actually block the satellite from reading your brain waves. But if you look up right now, the one you're under has a hole in it, which means the satellite can still read your brain waves. <laughs> the guy looks up, sees the hole, he goes, good looking out, and just takes off running across the street. <laughs> Silence over. Families out. Families in. Business saved. Yeah. Everyone's hey, let me interrupt you real quick. We have yeah. about uh, we have about uh, ten minutes left here, and um, those three past examples that you just gave they're they're spectacular, man. They're awesome. You guys are legitimately solving potentially deadly interactions by not using any violence at all. And you have you like what? What do you think that? Why do you think that the police haven't adapted a similar scenario? You have you were able to do this, and you have extreme limited resources considering what the United States government and other state funds have. You have, you know, you don't have one drop in a bucket compared to what these other, what, yes. what, what government funding is for police across the country. Why is it that you're able to do that so easily, not easily, I, I don't want to detract from all the years of experience that you had, yeah. but I mean, if you're turning Marines, I was a Marine as well, and it took me mm -hmm. years to break from my mental conditioning right. to where I would have enacted violence against anyone the government told me, you know. Right, and you're able to do that that quickly. Why is it that the police can't do it when you can do it so successfully? And how do you think that we can get the police to be able to adapt more training like this that would that would seemingly fix a lot of the problems that we have? 
right now? Well, what I do see is police are on the path. Okay, let's be clear. You see it. There's, there's lots of actual initiatives and programs and tolerance things. And, you know, they're on the path. So, so we're on our way. We can just go there a lot faster with our system that we have for police specifically. Uh, but remember, my situation is um, I'm directly accountable for outcome. Right. My income and my outcome are directly related. So as long as you do that, performance will always fix nine out of ten problems. So uh, at the end of the day, I had to create a condition where um, <laughs> the outcome had to be positive. So, for example, let's say someone's trespassing and I could use physical force to move them or I could use ten dollars. If I use ten dollars, there's no way we can have a court date. If I use physical force, I might have to go to court to prove that, you know, the force that was used was legal or appropriate. Right. That's still a waste of time, energy and money. So it's really a thought process that I uh, had to develop. And the first thing I do is keep my eight, my ego in check. It doesn't matter, uh, it, you know, what matters is the outcome. And so once you change your, your belief system, you can change your outcome. And that's really the key. The key. And what I saw was that, you know, people that are abused, abuse people. And, you know, it doesn't matter if they are police or civilians. Uh, you know, we need to train people to uh, understand how to get along how to comply, how to not, uh, um, not have adversarial interactions. Uh, a lot of times people are taught how to confront someone, and that confrontation starts from just the approach, not even what they said. They could actually come up, with, come up to just talk and give, give them a, a, an award, but because of how they approach the person so offended, you actually have violence. So, you know, what we teach is, is the psychology required to understand the biomechanics the practice, what we call protective pro, uh, proxemics and protective praxeology. You know, how you understand how to create your safety while creating a safe projection and interpretation with others so you're not misunderstood, so you can create a non-adversarial interaction and non-violence by design. You actually use uh, threat management for that. And that's why there's police officers, which I'm very proud of, uh, the police officers that have these great stories of how they use the training uh, to stop violence from occurring. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. That's, that's what I'm most proud of is we've gone into people's lives directly and indirectly. A police officer went into a, in a raid scenario and a man would not put a gun down. He was the first man through the door and uh, he was part of a uh, uh, specialized unit that was looking for uh, extreme violent people. So he came, he came in the house, first man in. A man would not put the gun down. He did what I trained him to do, sidestepped, took the man's gun from him. And then he, the, the, the team members got upset with him, like, why didn't you just shoot? You know, he could have he killed us all. You let him just sit there and, and hold the gun. And he said, well, I knew I had time to take the gun. I could tell that, you know, I read his body language. I read it. I could take the gun from the guy. And he did, right? And so he asked the man, he said, why did you not drop the gun when we were yelling police at 3 in the morning and coming in your house? and you see us coming in, why didn't you just drop the gun? He said, young man, I lost my hearing in the Vietnam War. Wow, so they almost killed an I innocent deaf man. I can't even hear you. I, <laughs> I could not hear you. I'm reading your lips right now. He said, um, all I see is men coming in my door at 3 o'clock in the morning, and it turns out they were uh, looking for a different smith. It's the wrong, wrong house. Wow. Yes, so, so it just shows we can, we can actually stop uh, uh, violence. I'm very proud. That man's alive right now because that officer is now a sergeant was actually one of my students when he was in the academy eight years ago. 
And um, very proud of that story. And there's lots of others like that where, you know, officers have gone in situations and have been able to create peace peacefully um, in a positive, proactive way that doesn't make the officer weak, but also doesn't create an adversarial interaction and doesn't give the upper hand to the violent criminal all at the same time. And there are actual violent criminals. And let's be clear that um, this concept of defunding police and not having police or, well, you know, you could change the word to protector, and I'd be uh, very supportive of that, because um, we need pre- we need public protectors. Okay, that's what we do. Actually, need that someone that's paid by the public for protection. All right, and uh, example of what happens: you don't have police or protection uh, provided, or the idea of it is Hurricane Katrina, which I went there the first weekend that it happened, and what I can tell you is people do not do well when they believe there is no legal authority in the region to help them. Uh, they just don't do well. Okay, so we're talking African-Americans, we're attacking African-Americans, the European-Americans were attacking European-Americans, the police were attacking uh, other people. It's just, it was a mess. Corporations were attacking police and the people, corporate um, uh, entities, corporate warriors, uh, privateers, um, you know, paramilitaries. So they, uh, there was militia groups that were attacking there were it gangs was that were attacking. It was, it's, a, it's a giant mess. So the idea that somehow people are okay when there's no um, legal format and structure in society is just, does, it's not true. I, I was there. I saw it. There was no one to call. Satellite didn't work. Phones didn't work. There was nothing working. So there's, you know, there's, there's not going to be very, time, very many times in your world where you're going to be in a situation where there's no phones, no electricity, no one to call, and lots of humans around. And speaking right. of which, yeah. Dale, on one of the interviews I watched, uh, could have been a couple of years back now, but you mentioned that none of your team members have ever had a court date, you've never had a killed employee, and you've never had any injured or killed clients. Uh, that's that, right. That's, that's very impressive, and uh, right. I think that track record speaks volumes. Yes, that, that, that's most impressive that you know, and that's how people like you can get a you can get a court date and a lawsuit for nothing. You literally can. I mean, you literally can do nothing wrong and still get court dates and lawsuits. So let's be clear. Um, but it's a lot. If you actually, uh, so we use cameras. We use lots of video, and that's how we defeat things from escalating. So what I will tell you is this: you're going to hear police officers say that people lie, and it's true. I did not know that. I did not know that regular people just simply lie for no reason. So yes, you do know police officers get caught lying. Uh, they get in trouble, yes, and guess what? Citizens are literally just lying, and you do see that sometimes in those, uh, those clips we're seeing in shows like uh, the European-American woman calling on the African-American guy or whatever foolishness. But guess what? What you're not seeing is the majority of those calls are African-Americans calling on African-Americans for frivolous things. I know because they're calling me, so I didn't know this until I had boots on the ground and had a service where you can call us, uh, and you call us for anything that's a, a, a fear, and if it's a crime, you have to call police first. And I, I, yes, we have European-Americans call too, but the majority of our calls are African-Americans calling about, I saw an African-American. One guy says to me, um, you know, security's not doing nothing. I don't know why we pay you guys. Uh, I see these kids walk every morning from, from through our neighborhood. This is an upscale neighborhood. And they have backpacks on. And um, they, uh, they go to the bus stop. Uh, and uh, then the security's not following them, and they come back later on the same day, and security's not following them to our neighborhood again. 
They're just going to school. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like you gotta, I have special training. There's like a special class you take where you know that that's called going to school. So I said to them, I said, you remember when you were a, a kid and you were still African-American? You had to go to school. Yeah, it's like that. Kids that are African-American still go to school, just like you did when you were African-American as a kid. And now this person, I, I said it in a very nice way, but he, he, he didn't understand what he was doing was um, what you see on CNN all the time. But I was getting these calls every day. Uh, where's security? I just saw someone in my neighborhood. I chased him out of my neighborhood. I get another call. Uh, where's security? Someone just chased my daughter out of our neighborhood. Both of them are African-American. So they're chasing each other in their own neighborhoods. Uh, <laughs> and um, I had to tell both of them to stop chasing each other. Um, and so, you know, the daughter's like, Dad, someone just pulled up behind me really close. And I got scared. So I started driving away and started chasing me. And what it was, the daughter had a new car. She's home from college. And the, the neighbor did not know that was, you know, the new car. So he starts chasing her. This was happening every day, though. It's always something. Someone's chasing someone's family members and friends. And, and then... Um, and then remember that people just lie. And what I can tell you is that you get, so you can create a lot of problems just by not understanding other people's perspectives. So we use video, um, that you actual iPhone video all the time. We talk to people, we communicate with people, uh, and we keep everything positive. And as a result, you're able to have the evidence and proof of what actually happened right now, which nullifies conditions for having court dates in the first place. Um, and I, I had a person say that, uh, that a, a truck that looked like mine did a traffic stop on him and his girlfriend. And uh, I said, oh, really? He goes, I said, when was that? He goes, six months ago at 3 o'clock in the morning and this date and this time. I was like, wow, that's really specific. <laughs> you know? And um, he goes, well, I was going to get a lawyer because, you know, it's blah, blah, blah. I said, well, sir, I said, let me check my records, but we don't do traffic stops ever. He goes, well, you traffic stop me and my girlfriend. And blah, blah. I said, sir, we don't do that ever. Okay? So I'm not sure what this is, but I'll check it. So I, I, I look it up, and the, the truck is mine. It's me. And I look at the video, and all I see is a girl in the car. And the girl uh, has um, a lot of uh, medicine in the air. So I never even saw the guy in there because the smoke from inside the car was going from inside their car into my car, into my truck. And I remember I could just barely see her. And I was like, ma'am, is everything okay? She said, fine. So he was so high, he thought he was moving. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they're man. both sitting still in a car and a neighbor called because there's a car sitting on outside their house which you think is scary you know i think about so there's never a car out there now all of a sudden there's a car sitting on the side of your house so sure. we pull up i get the lights plate and see on the video the car sitting still and i pull up next to them and i say hi security is everything okay with bright white lights right you can see the white lights there's no other colors just white lights and um says security and everything and, uh, and so six, six months later, the guy says he's getting a lawyer to come after us for doing a traffic stop. He was not even moving. <laughs> wow. You can see his legs in the video when I go back, right? Oh, but my man. point saying that is that uh, you can avoid court dates with lots of precautions, right? Sure. Uh, frivolous ones. A lot of them are frivolous. And so, um, you know, I, I had a situation, we had a situation where we had these stragglers coming through hunters, hunting in the middle of the night. And the way we stop them legally, because we're working on public streets, is we pull up with our, with our video rolling and we talk to them. Hi, how's it going? And they're like, what? <laughs> These guys are all black with a hoodie on. And like, hey, how's it going? Everything okay? Security, have you seen any criminals out here tonight? And they're like, uh, criminals? Yeah, you're near seven miles. There's lots of crime. People get robbed. I want you to be careful. 
Um, and, and the guy says on uh, this one video, guy goes, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just walking. I'm just, I, I go to Wayne State University. I'm just jogging. And I said, well, you know, this is an open community. These are, these are uh, public streets. You can jog wherever you want here. Whenever you jog in our community, just know you're going to get free bodyguard services. So we're going to be around the area making sure nobody robs. If you ever, if, if somebody tries to rob you, raise your hand and we'll come rescue you. He's like, for real? Why, why, why are you recording me? Oh, the police make us record everyone we talk to to show we're being professional um, and being polite. The police, you know, they look at this and they make sure that we're just, you know, doing our job. And he's like, oh, oh, police make you do that? Yeah, yeah, police make us do that. That's a lie. <laughs> and uh, so then, I, you know, we say, hey, listen, sir, if you'd like, um, uh, you know, let's say uh, if, if you'd like, you can give us your identification. You don't have to, but if you want to, you can give us your ID and we can put you in a good person file. Therefore, if the police ever think you did a crime, we can show it to them and prove to them you're in a good person file. <laughs> so would you like to be in a good person file? Uh, sure. <laughs> so God gives me his ID and I can see it's not even him, <laughs> but I got something right. And I got his face uh, in the video and he never, ever comes back to go jogging again in the safest neighborhood in Detroit wow. at three o'clock. I bet you so, have you, uh, endless stories like that. Yes. You create safety without violence, man. That's the point is I didn't have to violate his rights. I didn't tell him to stop, come here. I didn't say, show me your ID. I didn't, there's no adversarial interaction. If he said, fuck off, I would just walk away. If he said, get away from me, I would just say, okay, sir, have a good day. Right. And we would be far enough away so that we could just barely see him, but enough so he sees we can see him. So you can't rape, rob, and kill anyone. You can't break anyone's houses, but we're far away. And uh, so we're not harassing you. But at the same time, you won't be robbing, raping, and killing people in the neighborhood. And so you can create safety safely and positively. There's no reason to disrespect people or be adversarial. And I actually saw that with some country cops I came across as a private investigator. They were so nice, I didn't even know there was an interrogation going on. They're like, oh, how you doing there? Next thing you know, they're having a conversation about all kinds of things, and they've done a complete profile on you just by having a conversation. (laughs) You don't have to be adversarial. You can actually just be friendly. Next thing you know, you know everything about the person. Right. So so that's my point is, you know, uh, uh, the the concepts of force and violence, and that's our objective of the overall organization. That's why we started um, franchise training facilities so people can learn how to defend themselves, learn how to comply with police properly. You know, a lot of times, I don't know if you see some of these videos, people are trying to comply and they still get shot because they don't know how to comply. Right. They don't know basic things. Like one guy got shot at a gas station where the police officer said, show me your ID. The police officer doesn't realize that people move at the same speed of the uh, interaction. So the officer said very quickly, go get your ID, like that, right? And the person wants to comply very quickly, so he spins real fast and runs over and reaches under his seat to get his ID. So the police officer doesn't realize that you actually created that speed, and this guy wants to comply very, very quickly, right? So now you have two misunderstandings because neither one of them are trained to understand uh, the biomechanics related to body language, projection, interpretation, de-escalatory body language, and escalatory body language. So they don't know those things. We teach these things. I created the system because I had to, um, in order to in order for my people to not make the kind of mistakes that you're going to make without the training. So you have to know how to identify the uh, behavior, the physical behavior of the body, understanding the praxeology, protective praxeology, and um, 
again, it works. And there's police officers test- that testify to our training system working for them. Uh, and uh, you can create peace peacefully. That's the, that's the overall point. Well, I think I think our listeners are probably asking right now and probably wondering, you know, have you trained police in the past? And yes. uh, yeah, and I think that's important. Our website, yeah, because our website will see uh, police yeah. officers testifying. It's a uh, Enforcer Tech Nice program. Nice stands for non-injury compliance extractions. So right, literally Nice program. That's we give that to any officer. That's not even they don't have to pay for that. That's stuff we want every officer to know because. I call police for things. People call police for things. Uh, we have training that, that helps them. And officers have come back with things I've shown them in a street demonstration, just, you know, just randomly, and came back with great stories about how the training helped them. If you go to our website, you'll see officers that have used the training in real-life situations to save their lives and save the lives of others. And uh, that's what we're really proud of, is that it actually works for police, creating peace with police. Uh, and also, the, the one of the greatest things we teach is how to comply, right? Sure. Now, how, so if you don't, you want to comply with people, but you don't know how, the police officer is not going to interpret it right anyway. So we actually teach that, you know, how to, get, how to create the body language, verbal projection, uh, so you don't have the adversarial interaction and can uh, reestablish a positive communication. Sometimes, you know, the officer will be negative, and uh, other times the officer doesn't start off that way, but the person uh, is feeling negative. And so... Remember that most of our human communication is non, it's nonverbal. And so even though we didn't say anything disrespectful, our body language, whether it's the police officer or the person, uh, the public person, if you're not careful, your body language will project something and the other people will interpret and the, and the responses are subconscious. So remember, human behavior is mostly compulsive. So what we're responding to is not even something we can actually articulate. All we know is I felt a general sense of... Uh, fear from this person's body language, whether it's the police officer or the uh, public person. And as a result, your body is going to begin to respond adversely. Well, it's very difficult. Only, so, only the sociopaths and psychopaths can control their natural subconscious responses to fear. Um, regular people are going to have a subconscious resistance, self-preservation uh, mode that's going to kick in in your brain uh, that's, that's naturally there. We're supposed to do that. Uh, psychopaths, sociopaths, and people with extreme discipline, like from the military, can learn to overcome that, right? But it's very, very difficult. And um, so what happens with normal people is if you scare them, they begin to respond subconsciously to the fear. And that's what we teach police officers is how not to create that condition. And that's, how, that's what we teach citizens on how, how to interact with police so police don't have that natural um, negative response to a subconscious negative projection by a, a regular person. To a police officer, they didn't even know they're doing it. They didn't even know that they were actually, um, the way they were projecting was uh, causing the officer to have a, uh, a negative result. And, the, and often, it's the other way around, where the police officer, the way they, they didn't realize the way they approach the person is such a way that the person is supposed to neurologically, subconsciously respond adversely. And so imagine if we just train both parties, and that's what we do. Well, so our school designed it for that reason. Mr. Brown, we got to wrap this up, but um, you sure, certainly should be uh, proud of yourself and your organization. You know, I, I often point to your organization as a beacon of hope of how protection and security services could be could be implemented voluntarily in communities. So, uh, you know, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Um, you're certainly a man Thank of you. your word. You've uh, been consistent with this 
for years. And, uh, you know, if we could leave our audience with one quote, it would be the cornerstone for protection is love, not violence, not guns, not laws. You cannot and will not truly protect anything you do not love. And that quote was from Dale Brown. And if only more police officers, police departments adopted that mentality, I think we'd be in a lot different position than we are today. Thank you so much for your time today, Mr. Brown. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Dale. Thank you.